to talk about the cognitive profile of obesity and also what this might have for implications for uh, healthcare. And, but first I'm going to tell you a little bit about our university. We are a master's university. It's a very young university compared to Oxford University because we are, we are from 1976. <laughs> so we are almost 40 years old. Um, and we have uh, 16,000 students, but half of them is from other countries. So many German people, but also Belgium and England and also from all over the whole world. Um, that's why we also start a really English bachelor next year, next uh, September, because we have so many people from, uh, from other countries that want to study at Masters University that we do this. And we are in the, you, should, you also see we are in the south of Holland, so it's all so close to other countries and uh, it's easy for many people to come to Maastricht. It's even easy for the English people because I came by train and I was really amazed that I don't do it more often because it's very close, it's only three and a half hours by train. So then you are in, in London, but it's, it's from uh, Maastricht to London, three hours. So we are neighbors. <laughs> Um, we have some old parts of the university, but we have most of the buildings are really new, or rather new, 1976. Um, I'm working in, uh, in the psychology department, and there we have uh, the larger department is called clinical psychological science, and one section of this department is the eating disorder group, and that's what we are, and I'm chairing this group. And these are our current uh, PhD students and postdoc students, or postdocs, I'm not sure how you call it. But, um, and here we also have some professors that are working in the ET group, and they are there forever. Maybe you know them from the literature, uh, Sandra Wilkins, Anne Roofs, Lemke Havenmans, Jan Edekorn, Kauni Martijn, and Katrijn Houdin. And we are, doing, we are the eating group, and we are doing a lot of nice research in eating, but also Sometimes we eat together and we drink together. Nice <laughs> also. Um, what I want to tell you today is to talk more about research that's very useful for the clinic. And uh, that's one of the things that we want to do within, within this eating group that we uh, try to do some very uh, controlled lab studies to find out mechanisms on why people eat or overeat or maintain eating. And then we try to um, to think of interventions based on these mechanisms and then we also test these interventions in the lab or in, uh, with, with preclinical uh, participants and if we are sure that it's something that might be very useful in the clinic then we make a translation to the clinic and we are going to test it there. So it's a lot of work but it's, I think it's really important to do it like this. And we are uh, studying a lot of uh, eating disorders but also um, well, I would say also obesity because it's related to eating disorders. And if you ask me, I think it's an eating disorder. If people are when people are very morbidly obese, but we also look at uh, body image uh, research. But I'm not going to talk about body image. We do a lot of studies on it also, but well, only one hour, and then I should be selective. So we will focus on the eating today, and um, one of the no, well, I, I think you know this all. The important thing is that. If you, go, if you look at the non-surgical treatments, they almost have no effect in the, short, in the long term. In the short term, people can lose some weight, although it's not that much. Also, mostly it's uh, statistically significant that they lose some kilos. But if you look at the 
clinical uh, significance, it's not really significant. And the biggest problem is, of course, the huge relapse. The people cannot maintain their, um, their the weight loss. So if they were treated successfully, they will be back on their older, the old weights a year later, something like that. So that's really a big problem. And uh, well, we think that it might be related to the kind of research that is done in obesity research mainly. The focus is on all kind of biochemical research and uh, also genetic research and so on. And there's also a focus on uh, the environment definitely contributing to obesity um, because there's lots of food that people can have for, uh, well, they're very cheap and you can eat everywhere. So that all contributes to, um, to, uh, to the obesity epidemiology. But what people say then, all these researchers and all the clinici clinicians and all the doctors and all the dietitians, well, you have to change your lifestyle. And when we look at changing one's lifestyle, then people forget, or the experts forget, that that's really quite difficult. I think that we should do much more research on how people change lifestyles. So people say you should exercise more, you should eat healthy, you should eat not too much, you should eat more fruits, more vegetables, less fat, and you, know, you know it all. And then somebody says, yeah, I know it, and I try it, but I can't. I really try it during the day, but in the evening it goes wrong, or something like that. Something. During the day I do succeed, but in the evenings it goes wrong. It goes wrong, very wrong. So that's what we hear from people. So they know what they should do, and they try to do it, but they are not successful. And they feel that they can't do it. For example, they also say, when I eat forbidden food, then my days come, and I might as well continue to eat. These are very typical that we see in eating disorders, but also in obese people. All kinds of disinhibition related thoughts. So if we want to treat them more successfully with, uh, with non-surgical treatments, I think it's more important to look at these thoughts and to look, look at the, the things that maintain the ingrained habits that they have, because most people have very ingrained habits uh, of consumption. So the lifestyle interventions are not very effective because we expect them that they can change if they just want to. And uh, also when they do know it, they are not very successful in changing their behaviors. And if they could, then I think obesity would not be a problem at all because then people could change it. So we need more research into behavior change. Um, for, for example, on how to change habits, how to resist desires to eat, and we think that it's very difficult for some people to change habits. Uh, for, and it's more difficult for people with an obese cognitive profile. And I'm going to tell you more about this cognitive profile that makes it more difficult. So the, the first is a search to, into the maintaining cognitive mechanisms of obesity and how do we tackle them in treatment. I will only focus on two of them. Uh, in our cognitive perspective, we, we all know that high calorie foods are highly rewarding. It's for everybody. But there's an increased reward sensitivity in obesity. If we look at, there are many studies done into the uh, reward sensitivity. Many obese people do like uh, high calorie, tasty foods much more than other people do. And it might also be a consequence of obesity. It doesn't have to be uh, a cause of it. 
We also know that food cues attracts attention. So people are really focused on food cues, uh, and that's the more they, the more obese they are, the more they are, um, their attention is attracted by the food cues and the opportunities to eat. And these food cues, they elicit desires to eat. That's one of the cognitive things that we think. It's the food itself, if you see it, or if you smell it, or if you taste it, or if some other cue, a neutral cue, is associated with eating. But that's, I will explain it later more. Yeah. And we see in lots of research, I will tell you more about this, that people, some people have problems in inhibiting their responses to eating, to food. So, and that, that's what we see in obese people much more uh, often than in healthy weight people, that they have problems inhibiting responses in general, but specifically for uh, eating and food. And many of these issues are automatic, and many of these issues involve associations. So this is a kind of a very general overview of a cognitive profile of obesity, but we will focus on two of them today. And we will talk about food cues that elicit desires to eat, and about problems in inhibiting. These are very uh, strong um, characteristics for obesity, and we also think that we should intervene on them to get a more able to, uh, to eat more healthy. So response inhibition is the ability to not respond. So if you uh, are somewhere and you are triggered by a cue, you want to react. And if you are a good inhibitor, you do not react or respond. And if you are a bad inhibitor, you will directly react, respond, or talk, or something like that. It's very general. And we also, in lay terms, you can say it's kind of impulsivity. So if, when people are very impulsive, they respond directly and they, um, they don't take time, they don't count until 10 or something like that before they react. And um, lots of research show that many obese people are really very impulsive. And there's a lot of research done with the inhibition things. There's also this reward sensitivity that people are very sensitive for, to reward is, uh, is one of the impulsive things that they have. But the inhibition is, uh, well, this, this, it's, it's not very uh, effective in the obese people. I'll show you how we, we and many other labs are studying this. Um, for example, we have made a stop, uh, not we, but we, we have one too, but there, it was designed by other people. There's a stop signal task, and that might measure how good people are at stopping their responses. So we have a children task and an adult task, and I'll show you the children one. People are trained in responding, pressing to a button, when there's a stimulus at this side, say, okay, you have to press left, and when there's a stimulus at this side, they have to press right, and they are trained in learning to do this uh, as, as quick as possible. So if they do it very well and quick, then we say, okay, it's really going very good. Um, and then we make it a bit more difficult for them. Because then we say, okay, you have to press as quick as possible, but sometimes there will be a tone, for example, some, some noise, and that means that you should not press. So they are pressing very quickly, and then there's this tone, and they should inhibit their response. And that's quite difficult if you want to do it very quick for everybody, but what the system does is it's adapting to the individual. So it's always um, looking for the moment that 50% of the responses is successful. So the system can adapt to it. If people are very quick and also very good at uh, stopping, then it will be uh, making it more difficult. 
And when it's when they are very bad at it, they get more easy. And then we can find out for whom it should be more easy and should be more or should be more difficult. And we can calculate how good people are at inhibiting their responses. So we have reaction times, we have uh, stop times, and we make a calculation. And in the end, the more stop time is needed, the more impulsive one is. That's the conclusion of the system. And you can use this um, stop signal task for many, um, well, for, for everybody actually, and also for many situations. And this, this is just one uh, graph, but it's a general finding in many studies, uh, we found it, but also many other labs found it. What you see here is that the obese children in this task needed a lot more time to, um, to, to inhibit their responses. So they are much more impulsive than the healthy weight uh, children. They need lots of more time to inhibit. That's not the only thing. When we are, um, oh, well, well, first is, um, well, the children are more impulsive or more uh, worse inhibitors. And what we also found out is that if we induce impulsivity in uh, healthy weight people, so we make them more impulsive by training them in the stop signal task, then they also have increased food intake after uh, being made more impulsive. And this, this is especially uh, true for high restrained eaters, people who try to eat less. So they eat more after being made more impulsive. Um, we, we measured this, uh, stop with this stop signal task, we measured the impulsivity of obese children who were in cognitive behavior therapy in our uh, lab, and we did it before treatment. So we, want, we, we, we wanted to find out whether it could predict any effects of the treatment. And well, first we found a very high correlation within this obese sample between BMI, body mass index, and uh, stop signal task responses. Meaning that the more, the higher the BMI was, the more impulsive the children were, the, the, the less, uh, the worse they were at the inhibition. Um, and then we found out that the inhibition also predicted weight loss. When people were less able to inhibit their responses, they lost less weight during the treatment. So this impulsivity might uh, hinder treatment. And um, because most of the people obese people are more impulsive than healthy weight people, it might always be problematic for them to lose weight if they are really impulsive. So weak inhibition abilities reduce the effects of obesity treatment. That was our conclusion. Um, but we were, we were talking about the uh, consequences, the implication of this uh, finding. And then we thought, well, maybe it would be good in a new kind of healthcare intervention to give people a training in inhibition. So if we learn people not to respond, would it be helpful in the, for, for them to get their, uh, to, to eat less, uh, consume less, it might also be consumption of drinks or something like that. Uh, this is very Dutch, this is a bitter ball, we call it. It's really tasty, but... Uh, <laughs> um, well, if we started with some uh, experimental studies in uh, this training and wanted to know whether it was uh, working. So we gave an inhibition training to chocolate lovers. We selected people, students, uh, who were very, um, uh, well, they would love to eat chocolate and ate a lot of chocolate. 
and we use the Go No Go computer task to um, to give him the training. The Go No Go computer task is a task in which you see a stimulus a picture on the computer mo monitor, and then um, you you see another cue, which means Go or No Go. And if it's Go, then you should press a bar, and if it's No Go, you should not press anything. So again, it's responding or not responding. And what we did is we had pictures of chocolate and neutral pictures, and they were followed by the queue. And the go queue was press the space bar, no go queues do not press, and we gave them uh, more than 300 trials to train this. And we had three conditions. First condition is that people had to respond to all chocolate, um, not to respond to all chocolate pictures. So if there was a chocolate picture, they should not respond. That's what they learned. The other condition responded to all chocolate pictures, so if there was a chocolate picture, they had to respond. And the third group was control condition, in which they had to uh, respond to half of the trials. And then we did the chocolate taste test, in which we measured how much they were going to eat from the chocolate, and we said to them, well, it's, we, were, we are interested in the taste of uh, how, how, you, how you think that the taste of this chocolate is, but we measured how much they ate. And what we found is that indeed in the chocolate no-go condition, they ate significantly less chocolate compared to the chocolate go condition. Though the control group did something that we did not expect, because we hoped that they were in the middle or something like that. But at least we could conclude that in the no-go condition, people ate less chocolate. They had, they had learned to inhibit their responses, and that meant that they actually ate less chocolate afterwards. Um, it's not the only study that found this. We, we replicated it ourselves in 2015, this year actually, uh, recently, and uh, there was also a group in, uh, in Utrecht who did it, and they found actually the same thing, but they only found it for dieters. That's not a problem because it's meant to be uh, uh, good for dieters or people who want to lose weight. So, at least you can say that a relatively uh, short and easy training might uh, have the consequence that people eat less afterwards. Only short term, term maybe, uh, but if you train it more often, more frequently, then it might be uh, also effective in the long term. So this is a part of the inhibition training. Um, I think we, uh, we go to food curativity now, and in the end we can come back to the inhibition also. Food cure activity is uh, something that everybody has. If you like this, uh, these cookies and you see them or you smell them or uh, you have them here, then you will all be food cure reactive and you will all have some physical um, uh, sim signals that will uh, tell you actually that there's very tasty food and that you want to eat it. Um, we also call it hyper-responsivity to tasty food cues. And it actually, it means that it's an increased desire to eat after seeing, smelling, or thinking of food. And it's quite normal to be food cue reactive, though the obese people and the binge eaters are much more cue reactive when it's about food. And what you see here is just a picture, but it really says this, this, it shows the cue reactivity of this boy. He wants to eat it, and it's quite difficult to resist. The, uh, the cure reactivity if you are, uh, well, craving it like this. Cure reactivity is a very general term. Um, it's about uh, 
that you want to eat it, but it might also mean that there are some physiological signs like insulin uh, responses or blood sugar that is decreasing or salivation responses, that's what we measure quite frequently. And if you are cure-reactive, you have more salivation because you are preparing for intake. So your body is expecting that you're going to eat and then it just prepares for having all the food. Um, and we know that stronger in the obese people and that it motivates eating. So this is one of the things that might motivate to eat more than people need. So that they, that's just kind of overeating then, uh, more calories than needed, which increases the risk of weight gain and relapse, of course. Um, we did a small study in, um, well, years ago again, uh, already, already, and we had obese children, 8 to 12 years old, and uh, we also had normal weight children, and we um, exposed them to lots of tasty foods. These were tasty foods, and they had to smell the food for 10 to 12 minutes without eating. So you should, you should smell it, but you, you were not permitted to eat. And these children, well, they, were, uh, they, they wanted to eat them, of course. And after uh, the smelling, we said, then we did a taste test again, so you can eat as much as you like, and that's what they really liked. Um, but you see here in the exposure group, the people who sm smelt the food, that the overweight obese children ate much more uh, calories compared to the healthy weight children. They had also been smelling for 10-12 minutes, and uh, well, they ate even less compared to a control condition in which they just were playing with something and didn't smell any food at all. So you see that the, that the, the uh, obese children increase their intake when they are exposed to foods and they uh, are more cure-reactive, whereas the healthy weight children decrease their intake, which, which is also very interesting, I think. And it might be interesting for the, the clinical or healthcare applications. Now, we also measured salivation during uh, exposure and we found a very high correlation between the salivation increase in the obese children and their intake afterwards. So it's 0.62, so that's really high. So if they ate more later, they also had this uh, bigger salivation response. We do it with cotton rolls. It's not really uh, tasty <laughs> in your mouth, but even then they have this increase and they eat more later. Um, and this correlation was only in the obese children. In the, in the healthy weight children, there was no correlation at all. So you see here that they are more Q-reactive and that they also eat more after uh, this Q-reactivity paradigm. There are many cues that can be, uh, that are naturally related to intake. Uh, for example, the, the, the seeing, smelling and tasting of foods is really something that's naturally related to intake afterwards. But, but there can also be other cues that uh, might make people Q-reactive or crave for the food. For example, thinking of food, eating food, tasting, now well, thinking of eating food, thinking of the taste of food. So thoughts about food might uh, elicit cravings. But also contexts are very important in eliciting craving or situations, persons or times. If people have habits, if they come home and they drink, for example, a glass of wine, and they do it for many, many years, the same time, the same ritual, coming home from work, feeling uh, tired and taking a glass of wine or chocolate. Then this, this is a context that might uh, be a cue for eating. 
sometimes uh, emotions or feelings might also be a cue for uh, for eating, and they might also uh, elicit feelings of craving after uh, lots of uh, um, associations. And potentially every stimulus is uh, is able to um, to elicit food cravings in people. And I will so show you some of that research that we did. Um, the interesting thing. I think is that emotional eating is a very high, highly popular thing, and many people think they are emotional eaters. And uh, it's quite easy to associate emotions with intake. And people learn that quite quick. So if they feel tired or depressed or maybe bored, and they are going to eat it, there might be a quick association between this feeling and the overeating. And then, in the end, the, just the feeling is enough to elicit craving and to get you uh, eating. Um, I will show you. Yeah, well, what, what I'm talking about actually is about that people associate these cues with the intake. And this association of cues or contacts with intake, if you think about it, it might be really um, something as, as classical conditioning. It's kind of a learning. Learning of appetite, uh, appetitive conditioning, is hardly studied in, uh, in humans. It's studied in animals, but it's almost not studied in uh, humans. And we did a lot of, uh, of, well, a couple of studies. And, but I will first explain, uh, repeat the, uh, the Pavlov paradigm for you, and then we'll explain some of these experiments that we do, in which we find that it's so easy to learn huge cravings and to overeat in some uh, situations. I, I'm sure you all know Pavlov, but I just repeat it very quickly. This dog, uh, when, it, uh, when there's a bell that's ringing, then the dog will not uh, do anything or maybe just listen to the bell. And if the bell, or if, if it gets some food, then it's going to salivate because it's, uh, it, it likes the food and wants to eat it. And if the bell is repeatedly, but very systematically coupled to the food, it's, going, it's predicting the food, as it were, so it's first the bell and then it's the food, and you do it every day, then in the end, only ringing the bell, will the, the dog will think, well, if the bell's going, I'm getting my food, and it will already salivate when there is this bell. So this is just the Pavlov, uh, all the symbols, and, uh, but it's, it's how it works in, um, food conditioning also in humans. If there's this little child and she's looking at this McDonald's sign, though McDonald's is not that popular anymore, I heard, but okay, uh, it doesn't say anything to her because she doesn't understand it. But if, if her parents always, of give her some fries, then she said, oh, well, that's very tasty. And if her parents always stop at the McDonald's and go there in the, the, the restaurant and buy her some fries, then she will associate these things together and in the end she will cry when they are on the highway and there's this sign of McDonald's and she will tell them, their parents, that she's very hungry because she sees the sign. Actually this is a cue which was uh, associated with the intake of fries and this cue can indeed uh, elicit salivation responses and also the feeling of uh, being hungry. So this hungry feeling is also a kind of a classic, classical conditioned response. Um, so if the, if a cue predicts the intake, then it might easily 
uh, elicit all kinds of responses to people. The physiological responses, like uh, insulin responses, uh, the blood sugar, salivation, but also the, the desire to eat, the feeling that people are hungry or something like that. So we did a lot of conditioning of appetite studies in which we used very neutral stimuli, not the McDonald's sign, but for example these little boxes, children boxes, or faces with flowers, or trays, and then one of them is coupled with the intake of food, very tasty, nice foods like chocolate, uh, one face, for example, one box, for example. And then we uh, look at what's, what's going to happen and how quickly people can learn this. Um, so the most simple design, and I will show you, is that we have always, we have two of these boxes and one of them will be coupled with chocolate and this will be counterbalanced uh, over uh, participants. One of them is coupled to chocolate and the other one is not. So there's always one box that will not contain the chocolate and the other one always contains the chocolate. It's only four to six times that we present this. So people are in the lab, mostly students, but we are doing it with obese people now, it's even more impressive. Um, and they learn this quite quick and we measure their cravings and we expect that the cravings come up after presentation of just the box when they have learned that they, the box will contain some chocolate. When they learn that the box will not contain any chocolate, we don't expect any craving uh, increase in these persons. And this is within the subject. So what this here you see that we have a measure of only four times uh, a coupling of face, one of the faces with eating chocolate. We don't tell them that, but they have to find out. And you see that the desire to eat increases quite quickly in, uh, when they just see the face that was uh, coupled, associated with the intake of chocolate. What is worse us is that you can learn quite quickly uh, the desire to eat. Just four associations are needed to show that there's a face and then you say, okay, I, I, like, I, have to, I want to have some chocolate. That's what people do, only four times of, uh, of coupling. We also showed some uh, that it's possible to, to associate a certain context with eating and to get hungry hunger in this context. We have a virtual reality lab in which you uh, wear the various uh, head mounter, and if you have it on your head, and it's really uh, amazing what you see. It's just like you are on this Italian uh, square or in this room, for example. It looks like you are really there, and we have been um, um, associating one of these environments with drinking a little bit of milkshake. Participant here, you see that our participant, she's drinking a little bit of milkshake, only one sip, when, um, when she sees one of these environments. And the, the idea is the same. There's a participant, there's one environment, and there's nothing happening, but she will get uh, six grams of milkshake when she is seeing this uh, environment, so six times the CS plus, it's not really well done. And then there's another environment in which she will not get any milkshake, so that's the CS minus. CS means the condition stimulus. And then uh, when we, in the end, only present this environment after six times association learning, then we will see that she will get some craving, we hope, 
in this uh, desire to eat, in this environment. That's the idea behind it. And these were the results. You see that it works quite well. The expectancy that they will get the milkshake is increasing. So people learn the association between one of the uh, environments with the intake of milkshake, uh, milkshakes. And then you see that also the desire to eat, it, it goes a bit down here again, but it's still significant. You see that there's a, a difference in the desire to eat related to one of the environments that was associated with it milkshake intake. So it's again quite easy to learn associations and in this way it was a context that triggered the desire. It was not related to any food at all before people started with the experiment. And we were quite uh, excited about it and what we also found is that in the CS Plus after these six trials people were going to salivate more um, so they had a higher salivation response if they just saw this environment that was associated with the milkshake intake. They had also a little bit of a higher response. This was significant and this was not significant, but this was higher than we expected. And we think it might be because there was a crossover in uh, these uh, environments. It was within subjects, so they had this CS plus but also CS minus in the same persons. And what we also found if we did a milkshake taste test after the experiment is that we we didn't find any uh, very clear effects of the for the general group of the CS plus. But when we looked at how impulsive people were, then we saw that the high impulsive people ate much more when they were presented with the CS plus, of which they had learned that it was associated with uh, intake. So if you are impulsive, it's easier even to learn these associations, and it will also be followed by higher intake. That is our uh, care, uh, our conclusion until now. Um, we are doing actually we are doing these conditioning experiments now with obese people, and it's really, as far as we know, because we, we don't have all data yet, but that people are really quickly conditioned to the intake of food and they have very high responses, much more than these students that you're uh, testing here, very healthy weight, normal students. But even here, you see that the high impulsive students are eating more after, uh, after conditioning. Well, I shall just show you some of these uh, slides in which you see that the acquisition, acquisition of expectancies and desires is really easy. And this is, these are other studies. Uh, it's really easy to learn that some cues predict intake and then you are going to feel a desire to eat already, just when you see the cue. Um, well, we did a lot of studies, you see, and uh, they all show the same. And the other thing that was, was that's always very interesting is that if we ask people afterwards which one of the, which of the boxes they like the most, then they always say that they laugh always. And 84% of the people said, well, the phase that was, uh, oh, well, don't look at the mood because it was a different phase, but the CS plus phase I like the most. And that's different for the people. So some had the CS plus degree and they will have a red one. Or the CS box, CS plus box, 90% of the participants said that he or she liked the most the, the box that was uh, coupled with the chocolate. So that's a kind of evaluative conditioning also. Did any of them make the conscious connection that there was a connection between the box and the food? Sorry? Did any of them say, oh, 
I like it because there's um, No, they don't say that. We just ask them, which, uh, we don't ask it also. We just ask them which one would you like the most or which one would you want to take home if you would uh, give it this choice. And in our uh, last experiment, it's not here in it, we offered people a choice to get chocolate or, um, or money to take home. And then we uh, gave them a CS plus reminder or a CS minus reminder. And when they are wearing the CS plus, they just chose the chocolate. It's a bit different. But it's, it's really impressive how it works. Uh, and I think that they are not really conscious of it. But I'm not really sure. We should test it. Um, well, this, so what, what I want to show you uh, is that human reactivity is quite easily learned and it might also be very difficult to refrain from eating if you are very Q-reactive. So it might be easier to diet if you are not Q-reactive or if you are less Q-reactive. We did a very small study in which we just um, measured Q-reactivity in people who were obese and wanted to lose weight but were not very successful versus people who were very successful and lost uh, about 27% of their weight and had a normal weight. Uh, so they were very successful dieters. And we just showed them uh, these pictures for one minute and we measured salivation. That's the only thing we did. So if you look at this and you are, uh, well, it's, did you already have lunch? That makes a difference a bit. But if you didn't have a lunch, then you can get really uh, a desire to eat some of these things. We just measured for one minute salivation response, and this is what we found. Um, in the obese people who were not successful in dieting, we found an increase in salivation. That was what we expected, because that's the Q-reactivity that we are talking about. But in the obese, the post-obese people, there was even less salivation. And that's what we didn't expect. We just expected that they would be about the same. But this is a significant interaction and you see that there's a decrease in salivation in the group that had no, uh, that was very successful in weight loss. Of which we might uh, predict that it's, uh, that they have reduced Q-reactivity. It's, um, and that, that, that makes them very successful in dieting. It's a cross-sectional study, so we can't, cannot conclude this, it's correlation. So we should test it in a longitudinal study whether they really, um, whether, whether reduced curativity is really predictive of uh, better weight loss. But it, at least it was really uh, inspiring us. Um, well, I told you this, that restricted eating might be much easier without food curativity. So maybe we can help dieters to extinguish their food curativity. That was the next uh, step that we wanted to do, to make. And we were thinking, well, maybe we can give them an extinction training or uh, a, a learning not to be reactive training. Well, you all know the extinction, uh, how Pavlov talks about it. If, you, uh, if, if this queue is predicting intake, then you should try to make the queue uh, not a predictor of intake anymore. And that's what you can do by letting people smell foods, for example, for a long time, and they should not eat it. That's our cure, of course. We do it a lot of, uh, we, do, we even do it in the clinic now, because if they, people smell it for a long time and they're not eating it, then they will learn that it's not predictive of eating anymore. Um, these people always ate when they saw food or smelled food, so directly, and now they have to, uh, to, to not eat. 
and it's quite difficult, but they learn that the queue now will predict no eating. So it's not that you unlearn the, the, the earlier association, but you learn another association together with the earlier one. So now they learn that the McDonald's sign is not predicting price. And if you make this learning stronger than the original one, then it might be successful in uh, predicting eating. So for example, this is the extinction. If you have a box that is presented together with chocolate, or they have chocolate in it, and they get chocolate to CS plus, uh, this is the CS minus. In the extinction phase, you just show the CS plus without any chocolate in it. <coughs> People will learn that the CS plus is not a predictor of chocolate anymore. Uh, here is the same, but I just skipped it because it's what I told you now, and you, know, you understand. So the here we uh, I showed you that we had four to six trials in the ex ex uh, conditioning experiments, but for extinction, it's not really clear how many trials we need because it's, it might be quite or more difficult to extinguish responses that are learned. Um, so here you see this scheme of Mark Bouton. He has made this uh, graph. That's performance. This is what you have learned, and this is what happens when you are extinguished. And that's what you want to find out in, in extinction. Well, we did these experiments where I talk, talked about before. And here in this experiment, you see that we uh, found a real decrease in expectancies of participants. So after we uh, did not present any chocolate anymore with the CS plus, they indeed are not expecting it anymore. So the conditioning is successful and the extinction is also successful. I'm almost ready. So. And, but what we did not find is a real extinction of desires to eat. And well, this is only one graph, but we had it in several experiments that it's, there's always a little difference there between the CS plus and CS minus. They still create a bit more when there's a CS plus uh, without any food uh, followed uh, compared to the CS minus. It might be these were only eight extinction trials that we need a lot, of, lot more trials to extinguish um, eating desires. So what you see is that it's quite quickly learned to desire for food, but it's quite difficult to unlearn it again. It might take a lot of time and a lot of uh, extinction trials. Uh, even we, when we look at impulsive people, people who are bad inhibitors, they have uh, worse extinction than the, the healthy of the low impulsive people. So it might also be that if you, uh, here's only four trials, and low impulsive people are extinguished, whereas the um, high impulsive people are still, this is about expectancies, still expecting some foods. So that might be important to find out. Um, well, we do a couple of uh, pilot studies on that and to find out whether we can do a kind of uh, intervention with extinction. And we were wondering what happens when people are smelling foods for a longer time. In this experiment with overweight children, you saw that the normal weight children ate less after smelling for a longer time. And then I, I just 18 students asked them to smell for more than 20 minutes some chocolate. This is some other uh, foods. But, um, and what we see in smelling of without eating is that people first get a more increase in their desire to eat, but then after three, four minutes, it decreases again. So without eating, people get less desire to eat if they just smell it, the food. 
And it, I, I think that's really interesting because, because they don't eat. And here's the satiation. They feel more set, set, uh, satiated after smelling, only smelling, not eating. So that's interesting. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a big increase in satiation within 20 minutes. And they also uh, think that the, the chocolate smells less good after, uh, during the time, without eating again. Um, so we use it for some clinical studies now also in spelling. We have some binge eaters, it's a pilot study, in which we ask binge eaters to smell for 16 minutes all kind of binge foods that they eat normally without eating. It's quite difficult for them because they have all their binge food there and they have to, uh, to smell all the foods and uh, to, to try to get the craving as high as possible. And that's what you see here is a craving measure. It's going up until about half an hour and then it's going down without eating, also in binge eaters. And we were thinking, well, it's quite interesting, um, especially because they also had much less binge eating during the weeks thereafter. So, and, and even a year later, they reported less binge eating. So if you do the context cure exposure, we do, I should tell you, we also did it in the context of their binge eating. So most of them had their binges at home. So we went to their homes and did a cue exposure there. And then they had, uh, well, a significant reduction in binge eating. It's only a pilot study. We need more studies, but it's interesting. We are doing some exp more experimental studies now with obese people in which we try to find out how the Q-exposure works. We gave them one session of Q-exposure, four times 20 minutes of exposure, obese people, and we measured their Q-reactivity, desire to eat, and also cognitive control. We measured when I'm exposed to tasty foods, I have to eat, what they were thinking, how, how much they believed in this cognition. And this is what we found in this, uh, the, the, the belief in the cognition in the Q-exposure group was decreasing significantly, Whereas in the control condition, it remained the same. So people thought that they had more uh, control about uh, the food when they had exposure. And this is what we saw in the desire, uh, for the desire. You see that the desire after 18 minutes of exposure was decreasing also. In the, it's relative to the control group because time is also running, so we made a relative uh, graph. Um, and we see, you see that the, 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 there's a decrease in the craving of people after 18 minutes of exposure. And this is what we saw, oh well, this is the curative again, decreasing in the exposure group, increasing in the control group. And this is what happened with the intake after exposure. So we exposed them to, I should tell you two things, we exposed them to chocolate mousse and all other kinds of things. But chocolate mousse was one of the exposure things, and we also had in a taste test we had chocolate mousse and other kind of things. And only the chocolate mousse intake reduced. So it was no generalization to your foods. So we should um, try to get it and find out how we can incre increase that also. But for the chocolate mousse, you see a reduced intake in the exposed group. So after uh, 18 minutes of uh, smelling, uh, people eat less after, uh, during the taste test compared to a control group. Uh, so there are some clinical studies, but they are all small samples, like I showed you for the pilot study. So I think it's necessary that we should do some more clinical studies with uh, larger samples. Okay, yeah, and well, this is to sum up. Um, 
Well, he tests some theories about mechanisms that might maintain uh, the overeating in people, actually. Um, and if we find the Kahl-Paulson mechanism, we try to tackle the mechanism in the, in the laboratory first. And we test it in some, uh, some, of, some of these ex uh, interventions on a preclinical level. And if it's uh, very well, like the pure exposure, with so many very nice results that we thought, well, we're going to, to test it in the clinic also. And there it's, it seems to work quite well, but we need uh, larger samples to find out whether it's really working. And well, that's what I want to tell you, and I want to thank you for your attention. And this is the eating group again. Well, some people of it. <laughs> <laughs>